0: recorded this episode as a part of a podcast series on the occasion of COP27. Each episode illustrates the breadth and depth of Marsh McLennan's climate capabilities. The issues addressed throughout the series include investment transition, the insurance sector's role in climate adaptation, communities and businesses exposure to physical risks, and how companies need to address the inextricable link between climate and nature. Find more information about how Mercer, Marsh, and other Marsh McLennan businesses will be addressing these issues at COP27 and beyond in the podcast description. Welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. My name is Max Msturvey. I'm head of sustainable investment for the Americas region for Mercer. Um, I'm joined today by Rich Newsom, executive director for investments and global chief investment strategist at Mercer, as well as Kara Williams, our global head of ESG and sustainability, wealth management, and multinational client lead for wealth, also with Mercer. So thanks very much, Rich, Cara, for, for joining me today. We're here to talk about COP27 and um, all the outcomes there and what institutional investors would need to know, um, what they should be thinking about, risks they want to consider, and opportunities they may want to try to take advantage of. To set the stage for what we are seeing in terms of climate change from a physical science perspective, so globally, the Earth is currently at 1.2 degrees Celsius of warming over pre-industrial times. The uh, non-governmental organization Climate Action Tracker projects that countries 2030 targets as set forth in their nationally determined contributions or NDCs, would only get us to about 2.4 degrees Celsius of warming, a far cry from the one and a half degrees Celsius of global warming trajectory that the IPCC or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change tells us is an upper limit and which the Paris Agreement has set as its explicit goal. COP27 ended with no meaningful increase in decarbonization ambition by member countries, despite widespread pledges to ratchet up ambition coming out of COP26 in Glasgow. Certainly, the challenging macro environment of high global inflation and rising energy prices presented near-term challenges in that respect. So that being said, for the first time ever, the agreement struck in Sharm El Sheikh established a loss and damage fund that will support the most vulnerable countries to build resilience to and recover from the growing physical impacts of climate change. Many details around that fund are still to be worked out, and the fund requires speedy capitalization to enable action in affected regions, but it is nonetheless a significant precedent set. So, Rich and Kara, I'm aware that this is the first COP either of you had attended in person. And just say, by the way, COP means conference of the parties or parties to all these climate negotiations. Uh, And I know it was an eye-opening experience for both of you. Could you each share a few comments about what you saw, learned, and inspired you during your time at COP? So, Kara, we'll start with you, please.
1: Sure. Thanks, Max, for that. Um, and I guess I would just start with, you know, even by, with, with your introduction, um, you know, I think in the past, everyone's expected governments to, to make pledges, governments to make initiative, governments to, to kind of stick to those plans in order to make things, um, you know, sort of feasible, um, in order to try to avert, uh, yeah, obviously the, the worst potential impacts of climate change. So, Going to COP for me was really exciting, obviously, being a member of of the private sector, if you will, mainly because I think when I was there, I was really surprised by the amount of of interaction and connectivity between government and private sector. And frankly, you, you know, I don't see how this can even, you know, how you can affect change with just relying on one party or the other. I mean, this is really very much about, you know, all stakeholders to get involved in order to try to avert uh, climate change and try to manage down to, um, you know, the required 1.5 degrees. So, you know, I think Conference of Parties is a really well-named um, uh, sort of, I guess, uh, name for for this event because it really felt like that and it was it was really exciting there was a lot of dynamism there was a lot of excitement Um, this was considered i think they they kept calling this is um this was meant to be the uh you know the the conference where we actually saw action Um, so i to me it was it was exciting um and i'm hoping that you know this does lead lead to definitive action and i know we'll talk probably more about that as we continue our chat
0: I think I heard the a, implementation COP correct. That's yeah. uh, that was the term that I, I saw thrown around. Great, thanks, uh, Rich. Over to you. I mean, any any thoughts, reactions, having been at your first COP in Egypt?
2: Um, I'll try to give some sense of the emotion, but the headline would be snatching victory from the jaws of of prospective defeat. Um, you know, a couple weeks into COP, when I interacted with anybody involved with a government or an NGO or an activist. They were enormously discouraged and worried we were actually going to backslide and then near the last minute we had the g20 uh, express to their negotiators we want to see some agreement about the developed markets funding some of the transitions costs for developing and that's the agreement that came out of the development at the governmental level from cop so so that's the victory was snatched from the jaws of defeat against that some of the other groups that were heavily represented at cop entrepreneurs, scientists, venture capitalists, asset owners, investment managers, to me, that's where the positive action came and the positive energy came. And I I had a number of conversations with government representatives or NGO or activist representatives where they were so discouraged from the negotiations they were involved in and the risk of backsliding and the lack of forward progress. And then when they interacted with people from, I agree with Kara, the private sector proudly defined Enormously optimistic about the technological innovation, the willingness to fund infrastructure investment, the willingness to fund disruptive technology investment, and a sense of, all right, then we'll do it ourselves from the private sector. Now there is government action that's helping the Western European uh, regulations, the the net zero movement. There there is there are things going on that create a market for these technologies, that create you know early stage adoption, that create pressure on entire supply chains coming from the government and NGO and activist level. But Max, as you outlined at the opening, if we, if we add up the national commitments today, we get to an aggregate commitment that the scientists are telling us would at best get us to 2.4, maybe 2.6 degrees of global warming. That's widely seen as exceeding the planetary boundary on what's what's gonna be um, navigable for our global civilization. And so, a sense that we need that right tail of technology disruption to make this cheaper, make this faster, get us get us to a better place, a lot closer to 1.5 degrees. We've set as the collective goal.
0: Right. Thank you. Well, I'm so rich. I'm saying you know some of the key themes you saw emerge while in Egypt. I mean, you've already touched a little bit on 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 um, disruptive technologies and infrastructure. Um, You know, what should institutional investors be on the lookout for in terms of climate-related investment opportunities that you're seeing, maybe related to those themes or others.
2: I, I think there's three broad themes for the vast majority of our clients who are in some sense governance constrained. You, you know, they're not super large in the 50 billion plus range. They're not employing armies of in-house staff. And so they need to participate in in engagement and possibly divestment or screening activities in collaboration with other investors or through their investment managers and mainly through the public markets for those investors creating continued collective pressure on improving reporting by underlying operating companies, improving measurement is, is both constructive and helpful and, and an area for continued focus. Um, The second and third stories are cleaner, but they're more restricted to um, more sophisticated investors. So, In the infrastructure space, there are a lot of projects shifting uh, power generation, power transmission, power storage, particularly in developing and emerging economies, where the project is net present value positive on current technology. But there's an issue with making the providers of the foreign direct investment, both the capital and the technology transfer, feel safe about their investment in countries where the sovereign bond rating may not be investment grade and where a reasonable person looking at it might think well that government not sure the rules aren't going to change over the next 30 years or that government will even be in power so how do you get private sector investors to put money in the ground for a 30 year plus time horizon when when you wouldn't buy the bond of of the country at least it's not investment grade rated and that's where the loss and damage fund comes in and donors and so the, the concept of blended finance or catalytic finance, which was one of the most bullish things I heard out of COP27, the idea that you take donor money, whether it's NGO or government and or local government, could be local as opposed to foreign, you take that donor money and you scale it 10 to 1 or ideally 100 to 1 with private sector capital, and you're not just accessing the capital, you're accessing the technology transfer to get that infrastructure project done to migrate that particular grid. And I, I use power, but we could go to agriculture, we could go to building materials. And then and then part three is disruptive technology investment. <laughs> there were there was a scientist walking around COP with an I-beam made of carbon and um rock that he said, I didn't read his paper yet, but but he said was twice as strong as steel at half the weight. And so I hope that's real, but but I heard similar things from um natural capital, from from direct air capture just, you know, cement that acts as a carbon sink instead of being carbon emitting, net, net, you know, there's just lots of technological innovation. And and that's where the the more bullish scenarios come into play is if we can scale some of those things and, and make them relevant as part of the global economic pie, we can really move the needle on emissions, not just in terms of the emission side, but in terms of possibly actually taking carbon stock out of the atmosphere. Which, which may be cheaper in some cases than, than, you know, that offset may be cheaper than, than eliminating emissions in some parts of the economy. So, so again, public market portfolio investment and the, the battle to get better measurement and better alignment through the supply chain, massive infrastructure investments and then disruptive technology investment.
0: Thank you. Kara, um, you know, I, civil society groups are, you know, they play a significant part in every every COP. Um, however, it seems clear that, you know, many activists tend to focus their advocacy efforts on investors divesting from out-of-favor industries. Um, as we confront the monumental challenge of driving the global economy towards net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 or sooner, um, and some countries later, um, do you think institutions can truly divest their way to net zero?
1: Thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, I... It... Rich, I think, laid out, um, obviously, multitude of investment options, uh, to, to help mitigate climate change and to even, you know, make the transition towards net zero. Um, you know, and, and a lot of it is, it's blended finance. It is, you know, certainly on, um, you know, disruptive technology. It, it's, um, you know looking at, uh, you know, ways, you do, know, to, to start to invest in infrastructure to make you know, real significant change. And if you look at the the organizations that have the um, the aptitude and the the capability and the deep enough pockets to make a lot of the, those changes that, that rich even referred to you know it is the, the large firms that are looking to um, transition their businesses um, they they feel certainly the collective pressure on on them um, so they are really actively seeking opportunity they're looking to, to make investments and establish um, you know their own venture capital funds where they do have um, access to potentially the get to gain the transparency, they need to make the investments. So, I, I mean, I think there's there's great value in um, looking at the companies that are out there that are looking to transition their businesses and a pure divestment strategy is really going to um, potentially you're, you're going to end up missing out on a lot of these opportunities to, to make, um, you know, to, to take advantage of some of the upside.
0: Thank you, Rich. Uh, what's your perspective on divestment? I'm um, based on what you're hearing from some of our largest clients globally, whom I mean, we work with.
2: Um, our largest, most sophisticated clients fall into two camps. Uh, one camp wants to align the values of their investment portfolio with their broader stakeholders, and so they're going to divest. And and um, the other camp doesn't have that consideration is strongly and views divestment as helpful, but not sufficient to navigate the real economy towards net zero. So, so in, you know, sessions we have with both groups, the second group sometimes teases the first along the lines of thank you for screening for green, because you're potentially creating a return premium we can aim at as we move companies from brown to green. But then the teasing gets a bit pointed, You, you know, because there are other investors that will hold that security, including private market investors and in countries or from asset owners that don't aren't focused on this particular issue. You're not actually helping us solve the problem. To solve the problem, you would need to do infrastructure investment. You would need to do disruptive technology investment. Thanks for doing what you're doing, but it's not enough. And, and, and a, a focus on transitioning the real economy as opposed to a given portfolio or a given company or even a given country to net zero. The idea that we don't want to export our carbon emissions from one area to another, from one portfolio to another, we want to fix the overall problem. So I, I, where we have clients where divestment is central to their program, we want to help them do that really well and, and help them do that in a way that causes the whole value chain to get better on measurement and reporting and, and, and so forth. And creates a market for disruptive technology investment. Um, But our most sophisticated, largest clients, whether or not they're doing divestment, they're very focused on infrastructure investment and disruptive technology investment because they're trying to move the whole economy, not just screen out part of it.
0: Right. Yeah, Rich, I guess so staying with you, you know, it's it's difficult uh, for those of us who are based here in the United States to talk about climate, ESG DEI or divestment without considering domestic politics um, in this country. So we have various state officials instructing pensions or other pools of capital that they steward to divest from certain asset managers perceived as pursuing, you know, quote, quote, unquote, a woke agenda. Um, and we have some members of Congress indicating they plan to investigate ESG practitioners from various parts of the institutional investment industry. So, for fiduciaries with stakeholders who are skeptical or perhaps even hostile to you know, ESG and climate considerations, you know, how do you and how do we recommend that they navigate this tricky situation?
2: I I think um, my advice to any institutional investor is to is to embrace the discussion and and recognize that there's actually nothing new in this. So, Max, if I go back 30 years ago, I was working with U.S. public funds, nonprofit hospitals, endowments foundations, and some of the key, what we would now call ESG issues, the term ESG hadn't even been coined yet. A lot of the theory didn't exist. We didn't have UN principles for responsible investment, didn't have TCFD, didn't have sustainable accounting standards board, none of it 30 years ago. We had South Africa free, we had tobacco free, we had alcohol free, we had economically targeted investments in low-income housing. We had a focus on diversity, equity, inclusion in the U.S. We, we had a lot of things that we would now think of as ESG. And in every one of those investment committee rooms, you would find investment trustees that would say something along the lines of, if you can identify a strong risk-return thesis, I can get on board with this. But if you're talking about doing something for impact or doing something for values alignment, I, I'm, I'm out that's not our role. Our role is to provide benefits for retirees or provide low cost healthcare in our, in our jurisdiction. And I may care about those issues just as passionately as you do, but that's not our role in this board. Our role is risk return in this portfolio to achieve that other objective. And so that debate is not new. Now, when I mentor colleagues in any level, one of my standard pieces of advice is when you have a disagreement with somebody and you're trying to get to agreement, don't resort to email. Pick up the phone, go meet with them, listen first and then talk. So, you know, to me, communicating through the press, communicating through headlines is a sign of a serious breakdown. If, if we go back just a few years to Iran, Sudan in the US, we had legislatures, um, drafting legislation to force funds in a very prescriptive way to be ex Iran, Sudan. And, the, the investment committees, the boards, the executive directors of funds that were, in my opinion, well managed got in front of that. They got with the key legislatures. They had closed door conversations. They listened first and they, they said, if we can do X, Y, Z, and K, which are all in line with our mission and risk return positive and low cost for us and capable of being implemented, is that, is that enough? Because the prescriptive legislation, when it came, tended to be higher cost and bigger risk return impact, and maybe not even as good in implementing the ultimate policy goal as what the funds could have done with some more latitude and flexibility. So, you know, anytime you have a funding entity, if you're funded by church, if you're funded by not-for-profit hospital, if you're funded by university, or if you're funded by government, you have to worry about your contributions too. You know, going into that room and thinking, okay, we can be fiduciaries in a vacuum. To me, that's not the real world. You want to do a good job as a fiduciary. You also want to do a good job maintaining support from your funding entity. And and if, if if you care about a particular issue and you're going in the investment committee room and trying to get other investment committee members to agree with you, my advice would be you need to have a strong risk return thesis also, because it's not that your fellow committee members are bad people or don't care about the same issue you do. But they're going to put the mission, the primary mission of the organization first and risk return of the portfolio to meet that mission first. And there's nothing new about that. And that, in my opinion, is absolutely legitimate. That's what they're in the room for. So, you know, we, we need to engage in this constructive discussion and try to progress towards bringing diverse groups together to make and implement investment decisions. If you're if you're debating the issue, you're not doing anything. So, so you, you've got to, you've got to find common ground and move forward with, with a decision implementation to create constructive progress.
1: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with Rich. And I think, um, obviously the, the, the conversation is a really critical one to be having. Um, and risk and return for most fiduciaries is going to be the number one mission, right? That's why they've been put in place and been handed that responsibility. Um, but I think also we can recognize the fact that, um, a lot of this is really just about good investment acumen. It's available information, taking that into account when making investment decisions is, um, is completely valid. Just looking at other, like looking at other aspects of of, of corporate uh, performance is going to be taken into account presumably by the um, by uh, asset managers and, and investors so um, I think when we, we look broadly at whether or not you include some of these factors it is a, it's an important thing to take in and, like I said really is a additional information that is made available um, that that you know, should be at least uh, reviewed. And then beyond that, if people want to make an impact, then that's really something very different. Um, And and that's where maybe risk and return almost takes a, a second place. But that's, you know, typically not what how the, how the vast majority of, of uh, investors who have a fiduciary responsibility are looking to invest.
0: All right. Thank you. Sounds like so. Yes, risk return, obviously, you don't know want to sacrifice that if you want to take material ESG factors or other considerations into account. Obviously, one one should consider doing that. But really, the stakeholder management sounds like is the key kind of new vector in this kind of polarized world that seems like fiduciaries really need to actually think about and manage. But um, nonetheless, thank you. Uh, great comments. So I Kara, just, just staying with you, Looking ahead to next year, we'll have COP28 will be held in Dubai um, and is anticipated to receive significant attention globally as the first, you know, global stock take, as it's called in since the Paris Agreement, you know, in which countries, their nationally determined contributions, um, their pledges to reduce their carbon footprints, um, you know, they'll be submitted and they'll be assessed globally um, for, for really kind of in a very significant way. And those are going to be tallied up um, under the kind of UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So could you provide a sneak preview of how, you know, Mercer and our parent company Marsh McLennan plan, plan to engage COP28 and what institutional investors should be on the lookout for next fall?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, you used the term, um, which is, was commonly used this year that your 27 was, was implementation cop. Um, I haven't really heard what the nickname is going to be for, for 28 yet. Um, but I expect that it's going to be the, um, now show me what you've done cop, right? So, um, rather than, than just talking about implementation and some interesting ideas, I think we're going to see some actual tangible, um, impacts and outcomes that, that maybe firms have, uh, you know, worked with the, with each other within their own industries um, to come up with some interesting solutions and, and certainly some interesting investment options. Um, you know, I think as far as Marsh McLennan goes, you know, we, we look at obviously climate from the risk perspective, which is a really critical aspect and a, criti- a critical view. Um, and, you know, there are a number of things that have been done and I, I've already seen um, a, a couple of things where, you know, we're looking at, you know, opportunities to potentially in- ensure some of these you know, smaller initiatives on, um, you know, for small farmers and, in in countries where they normally wouldn't have access to any kind of coverage, you know, making that available through some of um, some of the capabilities that, that our sister companies at Marsh have. So, um, you know, I, I think as far as we go and the conversations within MERSO that we've been having, certainly with the asset managers in particular, um, and even with asset owners, I think they are going to um, over the next sort of six months can they come up with some concrete ways that people can access potential investment opportunities and um, allow for you know, better transparency in that space.
0: Great. Thank you. Uh, Rich, I don't know if you had any comments on looking ahead to COP28. I mean, again, coming out of your experience in Egypt, what's what's galvanized you and what you look ahead to and again, what, what institutions should be keeping a lookout for and in addition to what CARE has already offered.
2: I think we'll continue to see COP ratchet up as a destination where entrepreneurs, scientists, venture capitalists, institutional investors go to either make deals or get educated and progress towards making deals and and we won't wait for COP 28 the world economic forum meeting in January I think will be the next the next round of massive numbers of side meetings speed dating to use one metaphor where people progress towards identifying partners where they're going to make something happen and we'll also see host governments come to the table, both at the World Economic Forum, but particularly at COP28, to say, we've now packaged up this infrastructure investment opportunity in a way we believe is shovel-ready, we believe is attractive. Do we have it right? Will you commit the money? Or if we don't have it right, what else do you need, guys, to to fund this thing? Because we're ready to go. We're ready to host this. We're ready to guarantee the rules. We're ready to create alignment. And and I think that's really useful because those things will move the needle concretely I'd love to see progress on the NDCs towards something that adds up to 1.5, but we may need, given other competing um, basic needs that developing economies need to deliver for their citizenry, we may need to see further technology investment to get there. We certainly need to see public-private cooperation, blended finance, catalytic finance. We need to see all that working. So I, I, I would expect that to ratchet up in Dubai. I think Egypt did a very strong job of hosting COP. With that said, Dubai is really easy to get to. And there are a lot of sovereign wealth funds within a one or two hour flight of Dubai. So I I expect to see Dubai be a massive um, side meeting bonanza for speed dating and deal making.
0: Excellent. I look forward to that. So I guess, you know, kind of wrapping things up, just just final closing thoughts from each of you. Um, Could you Share a few comments about you know, how institutional investors should view COP27 and the outcomes and any lessons they should take away going forward. Kara, um, if we, we can start with you, please.
1: Yeah, I mean I would start with, I think you you have having been somebody who also hasn't attended until this year, I I I'd say there there's a healthy amount of skepticism as to what what's the point of these things. You is this is this sort of a you know really more of a networking um opportunity. I think that there's some there's some significant value though in companies getting together and trying to solve an issue even with profit in the back of their minds, right? You know, that this isn't necessarily philanthropic. And there's nothing really wrong with that. You know, ensuring that you know capitalism actually is is going to potentially serve a positive um you know a positive service in this space is really actually quite powerful. And I think getting people into the same room coming from very different sectors is really important. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I would encourage the, the healthy skepticism, but I would say that there's also a great deal of value on the on these meetings that do take place. You know, Rich refers to it as um, you know, the as we'll call it the speed dating, but as as we all know, you know, a lot of good can come out of those. Um so um yeah, so I, I think uh you know we need to see more of this. I think the the cross sector uh you know, engagement is is so important. Government sitting with each other and having conversations is good, industry sitting with each other is good. Um but when we're all in the same room and hearing each other's opinions and discussing through and trying to come up with solutions, it becomes really, really powerful. And, and obviously, we, we look at it from a financial services point of view. It, it, it brings really great investment opportunities, which is in the end going to you know, do good as well.
0: Okay. Thank you. Rich, over to you. What, what are you closing comments, closing thoughts?
2: Um, a couple things we haven't hit so far. One is I experienced absolute will and determination on the part of the government, NGO, and activist parties that I met with in COP27 to make progress. There was frustration, there was concern, you know, again, I talked about snatching defeat, such a victory from the jaws of defeat there, but, but absolute desire to make progress. Secondly, if you're an operating company, particularly in the emerging developed markets, you may not be directly subject to Western European regulation. You may not have an investor base by and large, that is going to worry about your, your reporting, but your customers will, whether they are businesses or consumers. And so as the measurement gets better and the reporting gets better, those things are being used by customers to decide this company will be in our supply chain or it won't. And if, if you're on the management team of an operating company, you care about your investment base and your investor relations, but you wake up in the morning, except on earnings announcement day. You wake up in the morning thinking first about your customers because that's what drives your earnings growth and your earnings stability. And so, as measurement gets better, you know, Kara and I both um, made comments. I'll use my phrasing: your know, divestment is helpful but not enough, or screening is helpful but not enough. But but they're screening at the portfolio level. Those same measures are applied. By companies, and a, a company that's headquartered in Western Europe or the U.S., they may have no choice but to hit certain screens because their investor base may be such that they they have to be at a certain level, including their scope three emissions. So they're asking their whole supply chain to report, and that that's helpful. It moves us towards standardization. It makes capital more readily available. But but that ultimately having a you know businesses are going to move forward on a strong ESG story because of their customers first and and that that's going to continue to grind forward in in a constructive way. And then lastly, I am bullish on the um disruptive technology and the infrastructure investment. The the side deal making, the the recognition that we need all the above, the the very strong profit motive. You know, there there's plenty of people who've left um mainstream jobs to work full-time on on disruptive green technology. And they have a mission and they they have values and they feel great about what they're doing. They also plan to make a ton of money when, when somebody helps them scale that technology and, you know, some traditional energy company buys the idea of the two kids in the garage and puts it into mainstream distribution as part of the, the power grid globally. So that, that profit motive is helpful and that profit motive is going to drive us forward on this because of the customer demand for it, because of demand from citizenry to get us there. The last comment i'll make again is um at least seven of ten of the ten largest sovereign wealth funds i'm confident would say nothing else we do matters if we don't solve this so those universal shareholders are going to continue to put money to work along the lines of that risk return thesis you know the risk is so great that we have to solve this over a certain time horizon and they're going to do it collectively so there will be money and there will be demand across the value chain Publicly traded companies, private investment, infrastructure, everything that we've
0: talked about. Great, thanks very much to both of you, and thanks very much to the audience for joining us today for this uh, episode of Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. I think you heard a lot. You heard a lot of really uh, exciting, uh, you know, information from both of you. A lot of great, uh, great feedback and comments, um, Rich and Kara. Thanks very much. You know, government-private sector connectivity. There's opportunities in disruptive technology um, and infrastructure in particular. Uh, you know, there's blended finance is going to be a growing area. Catalytic capital. And, uh, you know, really think think more about how bring different elements of uh, the global economy together from NGOs to private sector to public sector and uh, having these conversations really helps advance uh, our collective shared interest in, in, in solving the climate challenge. So thank you very much again, Kara Williams, Rich Newsom, for joining me today and uh, look forward to seeing you next time. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice, and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's
1: opinions.